Hello, all, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Designing Culture Podcast. It is 1.31 a.m. on June 8th, and it's my birthday. Woohoo! Shout out to all of the Geminis out there. Um, I know I've been gone for a while, so that's for another episode. I'll go into more detail with that. But on today's episode, I partnered with my cousin Anitra because we wanted, we wanted to celebrate Black history and the many unsung heroes that have struggled and made it through the times of racism, segregation, and slavery. Now, don't get it twisted because even in these modern days, we are still struggling with racism, segregation, and slavery, even though it's illegal. During this episode, we're going to bring you stories about Mary Kenner, Viola Desmond, Theodore Gaffney, Elizabeth Jennings Graham, and last but not least, Septima Poinsett Clark. I went to a rally this past weekend for George Floyd, and a young lady was courageous enough to do a poem in front of a large crowd. And during that poem, she did mention Septima's name. So um, I was proud of myself that I knew that name because I didn't know it before I did the research on her. So if you know some of the names that are in the podcast, then you're, you know, a step ahead. And if you don't know them, do a little more research on them, find out a little more about them, because what I have here is something really small, really tiny about their history, but you can learn so much more. So I'm sure you'll enjoy the podcast. Stay tuned. All right. So the point of this, um, this podcast is to discuss uh, Black history um, representatives, basically, that haven't been um, promoted in the past. So people that we've never heard of, they're kind of unsung heroes. So I'm here with my cousin, Anitra. Say hi, Anitra. Hi. Hi. (laughs) And so we're going to be giving you a little bit of history that you haven't heard yet. You know, we've had more uh, more activists and um, civil rights leaders other than Rosa Parks, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, even though they are great and they're wonderful. But those are pretty much the three people that we always do reports on. Um, but there's so much more out there to learn. So we're here to, you know, learn for ourselves as well as bring it to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So who should go first, Anisha? Should we flip a coin? Yeah, we can flip a quarter. You got a quarter? <laughs> <laughs> are you trust me? Okay. <laughs> See if I got a quarter. Only got big dollars, you know. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so I have a quarter. So call it heads or tails. Uh, heads. Okay, I'm flipping it. All right, it landed on, I can't see, uh, landed on heads. It would. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, I, I lied to you not, it landed on heads. All right. <laughs> That's all right. Um, okay, so the first one I want to talk about is, her name is Elizabeth Jennings Graham. So in 1854, New York City. So at the time, New York public transportation, streetcars, they were segregated. You know, public transportation was in the form of horse-drawn streetcars for African-Americans around. But, you know, they were scarce. They weren't easy to come by. So the streetcars would have racially segregated signs. 
and some streetcars may not have no signs at all. So a lot of the streetcars, they were privately owned by different companies. And, you know, the streetcars that didn't have signs to it, it would be basically put into the hands of the passengers on board if they gave the okay for an African-American to board or not. So one Sunday afternoon, um, a 24-year-old school teacher by the name of Elizabeth Jennings Graham uh, was late for church service. She was with a friend. So they board this streetcar in New York City. So after they board, the white conductor tells them to get off of the streetcar and wait for the next one. So Ooh. she doesn't want to wait for the next one. So he goes, okay, you know, you can you may go in, but if like the passengers object, then you're going to have to leave. So basically words get exchanged. And the next thing you know, that he, you know, that he's trying to pull her out of the streetcar. So her, the conductor and the driver, they basically grab her by the arms and they pull her and they drag her off of the streetcar. So then um, she winds up, you know, on the, on the ground. She's, you know, her clothes are dirty. She's physically abused and she's also, you know, emotionally abused. So she winds up going, you know, she goes home, she writes a letter about her traumatic experience. And at the time, Frederick Douglass, who's an abolitionist, he uh, helps her publish it. So even her church jumps on board and there's protests about the public transportation incident, but it's not getting like the public attention that it deserves. So she goes and she tells her father, who's well known and respected in the black community. You know, her father was a tailor. He was also an inventor. Her mom was also an influential black woman who was a prominent member of a literary society that helped, you know, black women in the community. So the father goes out and he hires a lawyer by the name of Chester Arthur. So Chester Arthur, later on, fast forward, actually becomes the future 21st president of the United States. But at that time, he was a lawyer. So the father hires him to sue the Third Avenue Railroad Company. So a year later, it goes to... New York State Supreme Court, uh, Brooklyn Circuit, and she winds up winning the case. So they award her somewhere in the ballpark of like $225 to like $250, somewhere around that ballpark. So, you know, to us now, $270 is not a lot of money. But back yeah. then, in 1855, I mean, you're talking like six to 10000 maybe even more dollars. So yeah. as a result, you know, she winds up getting this money. So years go by. And she winds up getting married. She starts a family. She has a son. Um, unfortunately, the son dies at a young age uh, due to health issues. And she winds up becoming, you know, she still stays on as a, a school teacher. She teaches kindergarten for black children and she sets it up in her own home. So she passes away in 1901 at the age of 74 in Brooklyn, New York. So her court victory is so monumental because she fought at a time, you know, when there was segregation and public transportation. And she fought for equality. You know, she knew that it was wrong. She stood up. She fought for justice. And she actually went to court and she won. And, you know, she came before Rosa Parks, before Claudette Colvin, you know, and her, even though her court case didn't end segregation, it was kind of like that legal step. It was a legal step towards civil rights and equality. So, you know, and she wasn't the only one, you know, she wasn't the only one to fight for desegregation in New York public transportation, you know, there were many civil rights activists like, you know, Reverend James W.C. Pennington, Ellen Anderson, a man named David Ruggles, you know, there were many African-American 
people whose names were never written in newspapers and they didn't receive the public attention and they stood up for the injustice of uh, segregation and public transportation. So most of the names that were recognized, you know, they would go to court and a lot of people would sue and they would lose in court and right. she won. So, you know, it, it definitely was monumental and she should definitely be applauded for her heroic efforts. And, you know, I was actually reading uh, an article I believe it was from last year that it was posted, but it was a few articles online that they're supposed to be building a statue in her honor in New York next to Grand Central Station in like two years. So supposedly she's supposed to be, she's like one out of five women where there's supposed to be a statue and it's supposed to be five women across five boroughs. And it's a program I read about called She Built NYC. And it's really yeah. interesting if anybody Googles it. And I thought it was really good. And I think that she definitely does deserve a statue, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's well-deserved. So I, I think she was a great civil rights activist. I think that um, she did it at a time when, you know, you, it probably could have been a losing battle and she won. So I think she should definitely, definitely be applauded. It's well-deserved for right. her role of reference. And you said this happened in New York? This happened in New York back in 1854 because there was there was segregation in New York. You know, back then, right. even though slavery was abolished, there was right. still segregation. You know, like it wasn't like, you know, you could just hop on. You know, they had the omnibuses and the horse-drawn streetcars, but you couldn't just get on. And most of them had the signs and the ones that didn't have a sign. You know, it basically was up to the passengers if they were OK with that. So it was really, you know, up to them. And then uh, all those like railroad companies that did the the streetcars and omnibuses they were privately owned you know so okay yeah it was totally different back then that is awesome so when did you say the statues are going to be built or her statue is going to be built you said, they said yeah i read i read online they were saying like 2022 or 2023 i don't know i mean it could have gotten pushed back um coronavirus yeah, it could have gotten pushed back, but I did read online, like if you Google Elizabeth Jennings Graham, like, and then Google like statue or just right. Google she built NYC, you'll see like, um, there's a, a lot of articles on the five women that they're trying to uh, represent. Right. That is awesome. So we that definitely follow awesome. up on that to make sure it gets done. Yeah, I know. I was like, if it if they actually do do it, I'm I would like to go down there and take a picture of it. So right, yeah, that would be that would be awesome. That would be definitely awesome. So yeah, that was a great story. I enjoyed it. Um, so my um, <clears throat> my report, I feel like I'm mm -hmm. standing up in fourth grade. <laughs> my report is on <laughs> so my report is on um, Septima Poinsett Clark, and she is known as the mother of the movement. Um, she was born May 3rd, 1898 in Charleston, South Carolina, which is about 40 minutes from where my mother and your grandmother grew up. Mm -hmm. And um, her, her mother was, um, her mother ended up being a launderer and her father was a former slave, but they were very much into education, even though he didn't know how to read and write. Her mother um, grew up in Haiti and she knew how to read and write at a young age. Um, Clark is known for developing the literacy and citizenship workshops that played an important role in the drive for voting rights and civil rights for African Americans. And uh, Martin Luther King, as well as many other people, you know, know her and refer to her as the mother of the movement. Um, when Clark's father, when he was formerly enslaved um, with, on his master's plantation, which is Poinsett, which is her maiden name, um, he would take his master's children to school and wait outside while they were in class. 
And um, so to me, when I read that, I was just like, you know, that's just, that's crazy. Like you're there, no yeah. more. you're standing on the outside looking in. Yeah. These folks getting, you know, a, you know, a great education and mm-hmm. you know, you're just standing there watching and that's it. And you're just standing there in the hot heat for, for however many hours, seven, eight hours. Mm-hmm. That was, it was sad to read. Um, and so then when she became grade school age, her parents noticed the difference between the white schools and the black schools. And they were very upset because there was a big um, difference. Like their schools were run down and the white schools were, you know, kept up and, you know, looked pretty and clean and everything. So they removed her from school and they let her uh, learn with um, a lady across the street from them who taught the other neighborhood kids. And when she got a little older, she attended um, the Avery School in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm. Um, She graduated in 1916 from a secondary school, but she didn't have enough money to go to college. So after passing her teacher's exam, she taught at a school on Johns Island, which is just outside of Charleston, because at that time, um, Black people couldn't teach in Charleston. Mm. um, Her teaching was very progressive and innovative. Um, but she treated her students with respect. So she didn't act like she was the teacher and they were the students. So she met them where they were and she was on their level to make sure they understood what she was teaching. She also pioneered the link between education and political organizing. So she would always preach that literacy means liberation. And she stressed that knowing education was the key to gaining political, economic and social uh, power. Um, She also studied under W.E.B. Du Bois at Atlanta, mm-hmm. at Atlanta University, and she earned her bachelor's um, in 1942 from Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina, which I used to live in Columbia, South Carolina, and Benedict was like 20 minutes away from me. Wow. Um, she got her master's in 1946 from Virginia's um, Hampton Institute. But Septima was all about the Benjamins. When she realized that um, Black teachers were making way less than white teachers. She put her thoughts and her her anger and her activism into motion. So her school had 132 students and only one teacher, another teaching principal. So she made $35 per week while the other teacher made $25 a week. Meanwhile, the white school just across the street from her, the teacher had three students and made $85 per week. That is a huge difference and would make anybody angry, rightfully so. So she participated in a class action lawsuit filed by the um, National Association of Advancement for Color People, which is the NAACP. And um, this led to pay equality for both black and white teachers. So her salary went up three times um, mm. by this. By, it, it's awesome, right? Like you can't believe that. <laughs> It is awesome, even though it's happening now, but you know, not as much, not, not as much as of a, of a disparity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so she, after she won the lawsuit, um, in 1956, South Carolina passed, passed a statute that prohibited city and state employees from working, um, for working for civil rights, um, institutions. So, um, after 40 years of teaching, her employment contract wasn't renewed because she refused to resign from the, from the NAACP. Mm-hmm. So that's just trifling. Can't even take it. <laughs> so when she was fired, yeah, when she was fired in 1956, um, she already begun um, conducting classes and workshops at the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, which is a grassroots um, education center dedicated to social justice. 
And there's even times where Rosa Parks and other women came to participate in her workshops um, just months before the Montgomery bus boycott. So um, yeah, after she lost her teaching position, um, she was hired full-time at that school. And um, she just kept pushing, you know, literacy and political empowerment and how to fill out the voter registration form because that was like a 30 question form. And mm -hmm. so if you have people that don't know how to read it, they don't know how to answer the questions and therefore they mm -hmm. cannot. So she, you know, she was a great help in getting a lot of um, black folks registered for voting. Mm -hmm. um, and then this school was actually closed. Um, it, the school was considered a communist school because both black and white people worked together. And so, you know, they would, people would say, of course, derogatory things about the schools, about the students, about the teachers. And they even arrested her one time saying that she was like illegally selling alcohol. And, um, but it turned out to be false. And, you know, she was able to go back to work. Mm. But her main thing, the main thing that she's known for is citizenship schools. Um, these schools taught um, adults how to read throughout the Deep South. Um, the project served to increase literacy, and it also served as a means to empower Black communities. So students felt invested in what they were learning and um, connected the politics of the movement to the needs of the people. So she would basically um, pick people out of the communities to come to her uh, workshops. And then, you know, once she taught them, you know, everything that they needed to know about their citizenships, voters' rights, and other things that would help their communities, those people, would, those leaders would then go back to their communities and find out ways how to solve the problems of the communities and the people. So that, that's awesome. And I hate, and that made me think of how people now, like in their communities, even when they're sometimes going left and there's a lot of things going on with, you know, mm -hmm. poverty and killings and things like that, how people, you know, they move out of their communities and don't come back. So yeah. education or their money, they leave and they don't come back to help the citizens that, that need it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the things that just, you know, that I thought about like, wow, what, why, why aren't we doing that now? And some yeah. people are, but at the same time, it's like, everybody's just like, I can't wait to leave. I can't wait to leave. I can't that's wait to leave. True. But we need to come back and help, you know, clean up the neighborhoods. That's true. And, you know, her that story, I mean, that's really um, touching because, you know, for her, you said that her father was a slave, right? Yes, he was a slave. Okay. For her to go from her father being a slave to getting a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, to becoming a teacher, to, you know, working in schools, to helping the community with doing literacy work and, you know, just education. I mean, that's just like, you know, that is like so empowering. And especially right. at a time, you know, of racial discrimination and segregation and racism, you know, just all these obstacles. Like, I can't even imagine. And I mean, I know, like, you know, for her to even have you know, to say like my father was a slave and you went, you really achieved this status, you know, this, this, you got this college education and, and, you know, I mean, you really helped the community. I mean, that, right. that, that's a lot. Right. That's, that's really touching. Right. Because you would think your, your parents, your parents would just look at you based off of what they did, you know, especially back then. And it was just like, you know, you want more for your child, but then you don't want them to get hurt. And it's like, yeah. just do what you're supposed to do. Fall in line. But yeah, you know, you know, you can't. Some people just can't. It's like I don't want this, and and yeah. um, and then they move forward and, she, and make changes. Yeah, and she went from you know, you know, her father, you know, probably you know being you know a slave, uneducated, and she just like you know, look how far she came. Like, look how yeah. far 
she came. I mean, that is like really empowering, you know? And I, I personally never heard of her. So now that makes me want to like look her up and, you know, read about her more because that, that is really empowering. Right. Yes. And, I, and there's a few videos of her on YouTube. So you, if you want to look at that also, um, there's not yeah. a lot of information on her. You just see her when you see her name, you see the same information, you know, repeated, but it's like, she, you know, she was a big deal. She was a yeah, human. And, you know, no one ever talks about it. I, I even asked my mother if she knew her. And she was just like, no, never heard of her. I'm like, you're oh, right. Yeah. She's like, no, never heard of her. So um, when she, so after she left that school in Tennessee, she went back to the South and, um, you know, in South Carolina. And she was continuing on building these citizenship schools and, and workshops. And um, she had to do them quite often in the back of a room so that, yeah. Um, so that the violence of the right whites would not follow. <laughs> mm-hmm. She basically had to duck and hide to teach these classes. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, other folks had to follow. And, you know, people were scared, but they still did it. And, and thank God that they did do this. Yeah. Um, for their community, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. She found that most men that she worked with didn't respect women at all. Um, so she, and I listened to one recording and she was talking about how, um, every time they went to a meeting, um, for whatever, either the workshops or the, um, you know, NAACP, there was one or two guys or, or even more, they would ask, you know, what is she doing up there? And, and people are answering them like, she belongs here. She belongs here. Like they couldn't believe like a woman would have that type of position that she has. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of, Southern male activists that you know did not appreciate her her um her guidance (laughs) yeah yeah at all so um and because of this she focused a lot on the energy of um of developing women and um like I said before Rosa Parks went to her school and other women went there before the the Montgomery bus um boycott because Martin Luther King and others thought that they could, she could build them up and show them what to do, what they need to do, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know, battle what, what they're about to face. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that was awesome. That so awesome. Uh, in 1975, she was elected to the Charleston, South Carolina school board. Um, mm-hmm. And the following year, the governor of South Carolina reinstated her teacher's pension after declaring that um, she had been unjustly terminated in 1956. So, um, so that was great that they went back there and um, reinstated her and gave her what she was supposed to have in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, her accolades also include um, that she was awarded an honorary uh, doctorate of human letters by the College of Charleston. Um, she also received a Living Legacy Award by President Jimmy Carter in 1979. And she won the American Book Award for her second autobiography, Ready From Within. Um, Septima, she left the earth on December 15, 1987, but she left us with a roadmap to help Black Americans develop um, ourselves and each other in our communities. Yeah, so I think Ms. Clark, she was awesome, so. Yeah, she sounds awesome. I'm like, in her book, I didn't even, like, now I'm going to have to look up her book. You said it's called Ready From Within? Yes. Her autobiography? Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. My next one is Viola Desmond. So Viola Desmond, she was born in um, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada in 1914. So she became interested in hair care and she winds up, you know, uh, opening up her own hair salon. She had her own line of beauty products. 
So she even opened up a school at that time called the Desmond School of Beauty Culture. And it was for Black women um, to attend training schools. So in 1946, she was traveling to a city in Nova Scotia, Canada, to sell her beauty products. She had like a business meeting mm-hmm. and her car had broke, broke down and, you know, it would take a while to get fixed. So she winds up going to see a movie at the new Glasgow's Roseland Movie Theater. So, um, you know, there was segregation in movie theaters, um, but, you know, we're like the people at the top when you were in the balcony it was for minorities and for the main floor it was for all white patrons so she didn't know that so she winds up purchasing a ticket at this movie theater to watch a movie so she's nearsighted so she figures she could see the movie better from the main floor so she's unaware that there's a policy there's no signs there's nothing indicating that there's a segregated policy in the movie theater so she um winds up purchasing a ticket and for the price of you know the balcony seat ticket so she goes to the main floor to watch the movie so as she's sitting there she winds up an employee informs her that she paid for a balcony seat and not a main floor seat so she goes back to the front to the ticket taker to try to like rectify the, the situation to exchange the ticket and pay the difference in the cost for a main floor seat and a balcony seat. So the front ticket taker tells her that she can't exchange the seat because basically, you know, because she's black. He said that he can't sell a ticket on the main floor to you people. So she winds up taking um, the ticket, you know, she goes back to the main floor anyway and watches the movie. So then the manager comes to the main floor and he tells her that she needs to move because she paid for a balcony seat, not a main floor seat, and that she's not allowed to sit there because it's for all white patrons. So she refuses to move. So then um, mm. she's wanting to force, they forcibly remove her from the seat. You know, so she's basically like thrown out of the, the Roseland Theater and she physically injured. She winds up injuring, uh, I believe it was her hip and her knee in the process. Right. So she winds up spending a night in jail and they wind up charging her with like a, um, like a tax evasion charge, like a kind of like an amusement tax charge. So the main floor seat that she sat in cost one cent more than the balcony seat that she paid for. Wow. So she winds up in jail. You know, she's in jail. She goes in front of the judge. She has to pay. Uh, she winds up paying uh, $20 for the fine and court fees, which equals like $26. And she goes, you know, she leaves. So she goes back home, you know, she's, um, tells her husband and her husband, you know, he's familiar with the segregation in that area. So he's not really, you know, he's telling her like to leave it alone because he already knew how it was. So she winds up going to speak to the leaders of her church. So the minister supports her. She also gets um, support from the NSAACP, which is the Nova Scotia Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So she winds up hiring a lawyer. And she wants to sue on the basis of racial discrimination and physical injury from the incident. So there's no signs, there's no Jim Crow laws and all that in regards to discrimination establishments, even though people were still racially discriminated against. So her lawyer decides to sue the manager in the theater, but he doesn't sue for racial discrimination. He sues on the basis of the tax evasion charge. So she winds up going to court, you know, they winds up going to court, but the lawsuit, well, actually the verdict, the lawsuit actually gets dismissed. I don't think she ever actually made it 
to the court. I forgot what they said. Something happened with the, it was something with the paperwork or the court case. Like they said that it was, um, it wasn't, something was something happened with the court case all i know is that it winded up dismissed there's like okay. different stories on versions so i don't even want to like quote an exact version all i know is it was dismissed she loses the case and afterwards you know she moves on with her life she and her husband eventually divorces she closes her hair salon and she moves to montreal canada right so she winds up dying in 1965 in new york city when she was 50 years old so in 2010 she receives a uh, um a posthumous uh, pardon from the governor of Nova Scotia, Canada. And even though her lawsuit was dismissed, you know, that day in 1946, she stood up against racial discrimination. So she knew it was wrong, but she willingly refused to leave her theater seat. So she's been called the Rosa Parks of Canada. So she actually came before Rosa Parks, but she is called the Rosa Parks of Canada. And in 2012, she actually got her image was put on a Canadian post stamp. And in 2018, she received the star on Canada's Walk of Fame. And she became the new face of the $10 Canadian bill. Wow. So she is on the $10 bill. That's in Canada. Awesome. Um, it's sad that she's she had did she have any kids? No, she didn't. Okay. Yeah, it's just sad to see that no one was able to see it from her family. I mean, she, she may have had, you know, family, I don't know, sisters, brothers, something. Her sister. Yeah, her, her sister. sister actually, they had a picture. I believe it was her sister, and it was she was holding the the ten dollar bill or whatever. Okay. So if you actually look it up, you'll see that they actually honor her. And she's actually the first Canadian woman to be featured on a Canadian banknote, but she's, yeah, she's like a new face on the $10 bill. I thought that was really awesome that's, because, yeah. and the reason why I feel like that's awesome is because we're still in, in our country trying to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and that hasn't happened yet. So, yeah. <laughs> I think she's on a stamp or something. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if they're going to go that far. So I know that, but I do know like her suit, it was dismissed, like it never made it to trial. And, um, you know, she basically, I mean, even though it never made it, like she just, I feel like she definitely should be recognized because she, you know, she stood up for herself in that theater, you know, she refused to move. She refused, you know, she's like, listen, you know, she wanted to sit there and, you know, and honestly, there really wasn't any formal laws that were established as far as um you know segregation was concerned there wasn't like Jim Crow laws over there like that so you know even though it was racial segregation but you know she you know she she basically this is where she wanted to sit and that's what she did she stood up for herself so and let me tell you I'm not even gonna lie I don't know anything about segregation or um anything like that in Canada I don't know anything Mm -hmm. About it. I didn't even know there was segregation in Canada because I've, yeah. I've never looked it up. So I was going to say, even when they interviewed the manager at that time, you know, mm-hmm. for like a local newspaper out there, right. and he was saying that, you know, it was kind of like, like in his words, he was just saying like it was customary for like black people to sit together in the balcony, but there was like no official, you know what I'm saying? There was no official um, rules or law. So, but then a lot of people around the community knew that the theater and how the community, you know, how the, the area was, that it was racially, you know, segregated. So. Right. 
Okay, that's interesting. No, and then they have the same, the equivalent of the NAACP. Um, in yeah, schools. they have a. Uh, it's the Nova Scotia. Here it is. It's the Nova Scotia Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NSAACP. That's where she went back then. Um, all right, so my next um, report <laughs> is on Theodore Gaffney. So Theodore Gaffney, he was a well-known photographer, and he became one of the first um, African-Americans to take photos inside the White House and for the Washington Post. When he was 18 in 1945, he enlisted in the Army, and after his military service, he took some college courses at, at um, Howard University and other colleges. And, you know, of course, like most of us, we don't know what the heck we want to do when we're young, you know. Mm -hmm. So he developed a deep interest in photography, and he took classes with one of the most famous photographers, Addison Surlock. And um, he also documented a lot of segregation in uh, Washington, D.C., so Theodore Gaffney, um, he accompanied the original Freedom Riders in 1961 as they boarded buses to challenge segregation in the Deep South. He was asked by Jet if he could just go down, you know, on the bus ride and just document anything. So there was no real um, order to do anything. He didn't have any real assignment but to take pictures. So he's just like, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he didn't realize he didn't have any idea of what he was, you know, getting himself into, but it was just a job and he said, I'll do it. So um, the Freedom Riders, um, as they traveled through Virginia, North Carolina and in Rock Hill, um, South Carolina, some encountered violence um, as they entered the white areas, but it was widespread in the media. And of course, you know, people were reporting it on the news and, you know, writing about it in the newspapers, but they didn't have any footage, any, you know, pictures. So, um, so, so yeah, so when uh, Theodore took the ride, the Freedom Ride with um, the, the Freedom Riders, he, when they pulled into, um, you know, the South Carolina areas, they were um, attacked. So their windows were busted, their tires were slashed, and, you know, people were throwing things to the, um, at the buses, and they were even eventually set on fire. So now you would think that, okay, that's not so bad. Um, but once they left the Carolinas, they then went down um, to, and these are the Freedom Riders that started in D.C. So they wanted to go down deep, all the way down to Louisiana to, you know, protest you know, segregation. So, um, so when they arrived in Alabama, the white protesters um, surrounded the, the buses. And uh, once again, they were attacked with, um, you know, rocks and things in bottles being thrown at the windows tires once again slashed, um, mm -hmm. bus set, buses set on fire, but then also there was a mob. So when he pulled up, you know, he said it looked like there was about a thousand people there when they pulled wow. up in Alabama. And they had lead pipes and, you know, just all kinds of weapons. And so they were beating these people as they were coming off, the, the Freedom Riders as they were coming off the bus. So these are black mm -hmm. and white people on the buses. Mm -hmm out into this mob but as you can see mostly you know it was black folks on the bus number one and black folks that were getting bit by the dogs like the police dogs so they're not even protecting them yeah so they were hosed they were and we've seen plenty of pictures they were hosed down um the dogs were biting them they were just um humiliated so what and what they did was um you know of course they went to the counters the whites only counters they went to the whites only bathrooms they drank out of the white only um 
water fountains. And so they were, of course, beaten over, over that. And, um, and Theodore couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. He hid. So he actually escaped, you know, any beatings, but he was also taking pictures. And so, and I looked through the pictures online and, you know, just like we've seen in the past, you know, it's, it's horrible. You see the people bleeding, doing mm-hmm. these people like their dog bone. And, um, and so it was so bad in Alabama that they had to get uh, the attorney general at the time, which was Robert F. Kennedy, um, mm-hmm. buy them out of there because no other bus company would drive them. Um, also, while they were traveling down from South Carolina to Alabama, they also had, um, you know, these, I'm going to call them terrorists, these white terrorists hop on mm-hmm. the bus and mm-hmm. actually beat them. they beat them from South Carolina to Alabama. Oh my they God. And they just stood still. They, they you know, because Martin Luther King, he practiced, you know, peaceful, um, mm-hmm. peaceful demonstration, but they would actually beat them on the bus and everybody would be so scared that they would just stay still. They wouldn't bother them at all. They didn't fight back. Mm. yeah so that's that's very sad to hear um so finally when they got the um, order to get flown out of alabama down to new orleans um theater said he said i've never flown before but it felt when the plane got off that runway um he'd rather have a chance of getting killed in a plane crash than getting beat by the hoodlums with iron pipes and he was wondering when he was on the bus he was wondering um you know why they weren't fighting back. So he was just basically saying that he understood they were doing a nonviolent protest, but how can you just sit there when someone's beating on you and not fight back? So something that I've always said, and like how, you know, why not fight back? If they're going to hit you and beat you anyway, why not fight back? But that was, that's been my question forever as well. Um, so, but he didn't consider himself an activist because he was just doing a job mm-hmm. and, and those are really the pictures that he's most famous for because he also took pictures of, um, uh, Lyndon Johnson, you know, Queen Elizabeth, um, Dwight Eisenhower and, and President Harry Truman. Wow. So he took all of these peoples and he, at people and he traveled all over the world, but that's what he's most known for is taking pictures of the, uh, freedom riders. Freedom and um, he was compelled to do it because also when he was in the army, there was segregation there. And then he also experienced a time when he was in Alabama um, where he was faced with a lynch mob. So, and those experiences, you know, helped him, you know, to say, okay, yes, I'll go and document it. But he wasn't an activist and he didn't do that again. <laughs> but um, um, unfortunately, he also passed away this past Easter. Um, wow. at the- due to complications of uh, COVID-19. So um, yeah, and then he was very scared that he was going to get caught with his camera because they didn't want to document it. But, you know, he was down there to do that. So he felt like if he was caught with the camera, he would have been killed. So so he definitely risked his life. But uh, thank him for documenting these things for us so that we can see, you know, what was going on. It wasn't just a hearsay. We can see exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, and him being, you know, a photojournalist, I mean, he's like, you know, he's taking pictures of um, history, and he's living through the history, you know what I'm saying? So he's like, he's seen, he's doing, you know, it's both going on. And he took pictures of not just the Freedom Riders, but he's taking pictures of different presidents, you know, you said he took 
uh, you know, a lot of political um, figures. And I mean, he just really, you know, he's living through this and he's taking pictures of this. And these are memories. These are pictures that, you know, go up in, you know, museums or on, you know, cover right. magazines that people, you know, you're living, those pictures tell a story, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And those, and he, oh, he left something behind where people can see not only his work, but see the history that's taken place and, you know, what has occurred and what he lived through and what other people lived through. So, I mean, that, that sound, that's really, that's awesome. Who do you have next? I have Mary Kenner. Um, Mary Kenner, she invented the sanitary belt. So sanitary items like tampons (laughs) were considered inappropriate for women to use. So even before the 1950s, you know, there were stigmas, myths, and taboos associated with a woman's menstruation. Mm -hmm. So this woman named Mary Beatrice Davison Kenner, she wanted to come up with a solution to those issues. And she developed a sanitary belt. And it was a belt. It had a moisture-proof pocket that attached to the belt. In the pocket, a woman could put a cloth inside, which would solve the absorbing and leakage issues. The elastic belt um, would go around a woman's waist and the cloth or rags would be secured and then attached with like clips or like safety pins. So her sanitary belt invention was patented in the 1950s. There were companies that were interested in her invention, but she had difficulties with selling it because after finding out that she was a black woman, companies declined to, you know, basically buy her invention from her so it would take 30 years for her invention to be produced and for her to get recognition for the great and life-changing invention so she had invented many items throughout her life she invented a carrier tray for her sister when uh mildred when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis Mary and her sister mildred invented an enhanced version of the bathroom toilet tissue holder which was a holder that would keep in place the loose end of the bathroom tissue uh, roll in a position that was accessible. She invented a backwasher for the shower that would go on the back of the shower wall to make it easier for people to clean their backs. And she also invented an ashtray holder Her sister, Mildred, was also a great inventor. She invented board games for kids. And uh, their sister, Mary and her sister, came from a family of great inventors, such as their father and their grandfather. Her grandfather had invented a light signal for trains, but he didn't receive a credit. And from what I read, it was stolen from him, the patented idea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, from what I read. And uh, also, she developed... You know, she developed personal hygiene inventions and inventions that helped others. So Mary nor her sister, Mildred, ever gained notoriety. They never got rich from their great inventions, but they did make people's lives uh, more nice, simple, and, you know, just comfortable for others. So she passed away in 2006 at the age of 93, and she made a big step forward by not letting society dictate how women should feel about menstruation. She invented a product for women so that there shouldn't be any burden or societal shame about a natural process and by lifting the stigma attached to feminine hygiene products. So ultimately, she invented a product that was not only for human rights, but was a great empowerment for all women. So um, I really enjoyed reading about Mary Kenner because she was such a great inventor. And, um, you know, I just feel like she just, got rid of that whole taboo and that stigma and you shouldn't feel any shame you know towards something this is a natural process so I enjoyed reading about her story oh excellent I love it and thank you to her (laughs) Um, I know right all over yes thank you I'm sure women all over thank her because we need we needed those things 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. It was really interesting. And I and I read later on in life, um, she actually uh, was a professional floral ranger uh, in this D.C. area. And she had like a small business, I guess, dealing with like flowers and stuff like that. So she never gained like any money from it. You know, she never she never got rich off of any of her inventions, you know, and she lived at a time that, you know, back then when, you know, like I said, she was discriminated because she was a black woman. So, so, all right. So that concludes our, I don't know. We don't, I don't even have a title yet. Our black history event. Yeah. Oh, you know, I wanted to tie it up on what, how it affects today. Cause remember we were talking about, yeah, just real quick. So like, um, you know, with all the civil rights people that we did today, um, as far as Viola Desmond, Elizabeth Jennings, and then you, and what was the photographer's uh, name? Jill, uh, Theodore Gaffney, Septima Poinsett Clark. Okay. So with all of them, you know, um, I just wanted to say that, you know, there were many civil rights activists and, um, you know, after these people and there were many boycotts, you know, there was um, people like Charlotte Brown, Sarah Louise Keys, Irene Morgan, there was the Montgomery bus boycotts, you know, Tallahassee boycotts, the Freedom Riders, which you discussed, the Greensboro sit-ins, the bus drivers uh, union, bus riders union, and many people who stood up for um, inequality and stood up for justice when there was segregation and discrimination in public transportation, restaurants, movie theaters. And today, you know, there's still people fighting for equality and fighting for not just civil rights, but human rights. So, you know, today there's many organizations like Black Lives Matter, NAACP, um, you know, there's, there's many organizations that are there to promote empowerment, provide resources, education, social, cultural, economic, and political change in society. So there are organizations today to lift up and empower the black and brown communities. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there as well. Yes, excellent. Um, and, and, and it lasted so long. You know, the civil rights movement, I, I'm, we've been fighting for however, four, 500, 600 years. But the civil rights movement alone lasted from 1954 to 1968. And that is, to me, it's like yeah. such a long time. Like, all right, you know, I'm black, mm-hmm. you're white. What is the difference? We, you know, we should be treated just as equally as you. Why are we fighting? Why are we still fighting? Um, you know, yeah. it's it's pretty crazy because it's, it's today that it the people in their right mind are still, you know, racist, but it'll have, you know, we'll have that till the end of time. But it's like, you know, my skin color doesn't make me any different from you know, as far mm-hmm. as being a person and, and being educated and, and loving and hurting and all that stuff, it doesn't make me any, any more different. So weird how, um, yep. you know, people are still trying to make us out to look and seem different. I wanted to say that, you know, um, that even though, you know, we as black people, you know, we've been through so many obstacles, we've been through struggles, hardships, racism, racial discrimination, but you know, our black history is so much more than just that. You know, it's a reflection of how far we've come, you know, the accomplishments, the contributions and success that black people have achieved even through all of it. And we're still pushing forward, you know, we're still moving forward, even when standing in front of our opponent that we call racism. So, you know, we should always stand proud we should keep moving forward. And no matter what, we should always remember that black Absolutely. is beautiful. And like James Brown said, Brown say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> That's right. Right. And hopefully we can continue this. I hope so. Like that. I know yeah. we're all busy and everything. But um, this was fun. I was definitely nervous in the beginning, but it was fun. 
<laughs> yeah, I told you. I was like, you know, and honestly, you know, when people, the, the people that we've talked about, you know, do your own research, you know, Google, go to the library, you know what I'm saying? Look them up, look people up that you've never heard about, you know, just Google, you know, that's what right. the internet's there for. That's what the library's there for. Do your research, you know, and, and, you know, open up those doors and learn more about your right. black history, and you know? And also because, just because they don't, and I don't know how the schools are doing it today, whether or not they're teaching black history or if it's just for like a semester or a couple of chapters, you don't have to just follow what they're telling you in school. Go home and talk to your parents mm-hmm. and, or your grandparents about what they experienced back then, because it's something more than what you can ever think about or, or feel in a book. If you talk to your grandparents out there, they can tell you how segregation was or how it was back in the day. Saying just, uh, you know, talk to your grandparents. They have great information, great information. Don't forget to mention your um, website. Uh, yes. Oh, my blog, www.tnotes, <laughs> T-E-A, like drinking tea, and A-N-D notes, N-O-T-E-S, right. T-N notes. Say it again because I think I was talking over you before. Oh, T-N notes. So it's www.t, like drinking tea, T-E-A, and A-N-D notes.com. Okay. Excellent. And so tell us a little bit about what's in um, what's in the uh, in the website. What can we find? What are we my my blogs? Like I'm somebody who likes to write about everything. I do. I'm gonna write about interviews. Like um, I just started out, so like I have an interview. I have a uh, article about speed dating. I have a write an article about a blog that I was doing for like a year about television. Um, it's like an entertainment thing. So most of my stuff is set up. It'll be about like television entertainment. I like to write about classic Hollywood um, cinema. I'm a big, big, huge fan of classic Hollywood cinema. I actually collect old movies. Um, I have so many movies uh, on my oh. shelf. And um, eventually once this whole lockdown thing is over. Um, I want to go out there and start writing interviews about people's, you know, just true stories. And I want to write about their lives and their stories and whatever struggle they've been to. So my blog is going to be about fun facts. It's going to be about a little bit of history. It's going to be about classic Hollywood cinema. And it's going to be about real life stories. Have you been watching the, um, the, the Hollywood story on, um, on uh, Netflix? Oh, Hollywood? Yeah, I've seen that. The series. I saw the whole thing. All right. So we've come to the end of our Black History Facts. And so hopefully we can, um, you know, do it again. I think it was fun. I'm loosened up. I'm loosened up now. It was. And, um, you know, help for everyone out there that is listening, um, take the initiative to learn about your history. You can also learn about other uh, people's history because we are, you know, a part of um, not only our history, but other cultures and um, other races as well. But certainly, you know, learn about your black history and find out what happened in the past. Don't just look at where you are presently and go forward. There's so many things that happened in the past that would change your life. Do you have a message mm-hmm. to give to uh, our, our listeners in nature? Just keep, you know, doing your research, keep reading. Like I said, go to the library. You have, if you have internet access, use it, Google and research, you know, look up different people, explore your history, you know, not even just black history, but world history, U.S. history, you know, explore everything. Like Monica was saying, you know, you have to be open-minded and you have to read about everything, you know? So I think it's important to go out there and read, educate yourself. And because I can say for a fact, they are reading about our history. That is factual. So um, thank you all for listening. Anita, thank you so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. listening. Take care, everyone. (laughs) 
Once again, thank you all for tuning in to the Designing Culture Podcast, and welcome to all of you new listeners. I'd like to give a special thanks to Anitra for working with me on this project, and I hope you all out there learned something. I know that um, Anitra and I learned something as we were um, looking into our unsung heroes. So if you have any information on Black history, shoot me an email at designingculturemg at gmail.com and we'll be happy to investigate it for you. But um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.